When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Namaste Motherfuckers, the only podcast where the worlds of work, comedy and well-being collide. I'm your host, Callie Beaton, and this episode is called Wimples, Writing and Wankers. And in keeping with the spirit of the podcast, it contains, as my guest today calls it, some plinky-plonky talk about chakras and Buddhas and self-help and stuff like that. The very first self-help book was published in 1859. It had the inspired title of Self-Help, and it outsold the other big book of the year, which was on the origin of species. Since the start of this millennium, mindfulness has apparently increased 20-fold. I've studied mindfulness a few times, and the first time I did a course about it, we were told it's not about falling asleep, it's about falling awake. I find that quite helpful because often when I try and do mindfulness, I do like lots of people start falling asleep. Apparently, our mind can process 126 pieces of information every second. And research has found that our experiences of an uninterrupted now, which is what we're kind of questing for with mindfulness, where we're fully present. Those moments last typically only one to 10 seconds. And you have to be a very experienced meditator for it to be much longer than that. George Bernard Shaw once said, the English are not very spiritual people, so they invented cricket to give them some idea of eternity. Is this audio audio good enough? Audio, yeah, audio's good, I think, yeah. That's my guest today, Kerry Godleyman. The word omphaloskepsis, easy for me to say, means contemplating one's navel as a form of meditation. Meditation has been proved to slow down or even prevent some neurodegenerative diseases and experienced yogis can achieve similar lowering of metabolic rates as animals entering hibernation. See, we can all become hedgehogs if we work at it. And the Dutch University of Nijmegen offers its students a relaxation grave to lie in for meditation and stress relief. It was dug personally by the university chaplain and it has a mat at the bottom that reads, stay weird. So when your teenagers tell you they're going to Holland to chill out for a bit, you'll know what they mean. Come in, my family home. What a grown-up. I know, I do feel like a grown-up, Kelly. Kerry Godleyman is a comedian and actor known for her many TV roles and appearances, including playing Hannah in Derek and Lisa in Afterlife. She's a TV and radio panel show regular and her stand-up career has included several appearances on Live at the Apollo. She's currently touring her latest show, Bosch. Kerry and I talked about kids, adults, menopause, Davina, HRT, tribes, comedy, acting, America, storytelling, writing, yoga, hypnobirthing, radical self-compassion, India, and farting in front of Colin Firth. But we started by talking about what it's like being part of Generation X. I was reading an article the other day that just said our generation were, we're fucked. I mean, yeah. that's why you have to go and do that Hoffman shit. Yeah. Because we are a broken people. We are a broken generation. The hedonism that we did for our youth, I just predominant. I mean, I'm sure there are exceptions, but that 90s period was extremely hedonistic. Good though, wasn't it? I was working at MTV in the 90s and I, I remember some of it. And I think if I hadn't got pregnant by mistake, um, sorry, Jake, if you're listening, he knows it was slightly <laughs> unplanned. If I hadn't got pregnant by mistake in the 90s, God knows where it would have ended. But I suddenly had the 
late Jake was born in 1997. So I had the last bit uh, of the 90s where I had a sort of biological set of, you know, taboos in place. And then I had to just <laughs> slow down. But until then, it was kind of game times. on, wasn't it? Mm, yeah, it was a bit, bit wild. And the thought that, yeah, my daughter goes running, she starts down the couch to 5k and I'm going to do this. And I thought I might That's do a bit amazing. of weight training. I'm like, what? When I was that age, there was no one was going running. I don't think, no. did we have aerobics? Our mums did aerobics, but we didn't. But my mum didn't do aerobics. No, I don't think my mum did it. I think my mum had those home tapes with um, Angela Rippon and Jane My mum wasn't getting involved in any of that shit. No. I mean, she, she, she I, I didn't know anyone that exercised. Yeah, it wasn't a thing. It wasn't a thing like now. Not in my tribe. They didn't have I gyms. Don't... They didn't have treadmills. No, no. Electricity. <laughs> shit like that. No, absolutely not. No, it does seem very like there is a different sort of lifestyle, you know, zeitgeist to when, when we were teenagers or younger. I think there's a lot of um. It's funny because I do loads of um kind of corporate speaking, but more motivational speaking and stuff. Yeah. And which I will never take the piss out of on this podcast because it's what pays you know for this roof <laughs> over my head. But I know I do like doing it. But one of the things I keep getting asked in to do, I was asked in by a law firm last week, and they wanted me to do a motivational thing, and I assumed it would be for sort of jaded partners in the law firm, or it's because they have to tick a box for like you know, Women's Day or something. But actually what it was, was that they found that the new entrance to the company, so the people who got into law, who were the top of their class at school, you know, out and, you know, doing stuff with other people and with a sort of competitive field, since they've, the new entrance into law firms, so the kind of high flyers, the younger lot, they've never worked in the office and they're completely demotivated. Like they're not, they're not finding it. They're not finding the pleasure of doing it. They're literally sort of get cracking through caseloads, not, not really finding it's and, and totally demotivated. And I've got a friend who's a lecturer and said the same thing. He's never known such demotivated students. And I just oh, wonder wow. what impact it's had on. This is since of, pandemic. Yeah, since pandemic. Um, so wow. that's the young kind of the cut and thrust. They've just had a real what's the point kind of epiphany. I think so. Yeah. And I think maybe it also, I don't know how you'd have been, but I wouldn't have had much to draw on at that age to help me through it. I think we've all worked quite hard to understand ourselves a bit. We've all got yeah, our kind of mindfulness. A sort of a philosophical sort of bag of tools yet yeah you're not looking you it's a lot of it's externally referenced to that point isn't it? as you get a bit older yeah. you start to look in a bit more and go what can I do that makes me a bit yeah. more resilient at that age I had I was like paper thin I would well, have no, totally that's crumbled fair enough that's yeah. what being young is and they're always being told that the world's fucked anyway so no wonder they're like well screw it <laughs> yeah yeah there's a sort of an a- not, maybe not an apathy, but I've definitely noticed that sort of, even What's in my daughter, who's really motivated, she's definitely become more of a procrastinator and a bit more like she'll drop the ball on stuff. And I think something's gone a bit sort of fuzzy around the edges. And it's happened to me with hormones. I'm very fuzzy around the edges. I can't tell. I think the Venn diagram of pandemic and menopause was a fucking Yeah, me to too. I've, I'm doing that dance. Are you? Are you in the yeah. peri? Are you in the I'm peri? in the peri, yes. So I've started HRT now. Have you? What are you having? I don't know. It's a gel. Is it Eastra gel? I have a couple of pumps of that and some progesterone. Yeah. Yeah. Been doing that a couple of months. You get watch very slippery in menopause, don't you? A lot of gel everywhere. Got the Davina. Watched the Davina documentary. Had a few very emotional conversations with my GP. Yeah. Got my elbows out. Menopause got... classic, I think, is what you're rocking. Yeah. Davina, Total. a bit of gel, cry to the GP. Yeah, that's that's the um, that's the, the model. Triptych. Yeah, <laughs> yes, where we have a kind of strange conversation where she tries to kind of persuade me that it probably isn't the perimenopause. Then I go back to my friend who's a bit more au fait with it all. She's like, "What the fuck is she talking about? Go back and make it. Give it to you. Yeah, go back and got it. Yeah." You have to be quite assertive to get yeah, it. I think um, even post Davina, that NHS hasn't got more funding for HRT. So it's great watching it, but it doesn't mean that it's trickled down to GPs going, sure, we can see you need help. If men had, if, if this was a male thing, we'd have dealt with this years ago because we'd have had people going, oh, we can't have captains of industry being out of commission for 10 years. We'll no, no. some medication. Well, wasn't there, a, there was a new thing passed in Parliament, wasn't there, recently, that they are going to... Um... It's going to be free now. Hey, yes, it's going to be free. And yeah. and also what they really need, and I'm not joking when I say this, they need some kind of menopause leave 
for people who need that who've got real jobs and can't cope with their I definitely part of me leaving a sort of boardroom career if I look back at it it looks like it was all clever and to segue neatly into stand-up as a full-time thing but actually it was because I lost my shit I just was not mentally stable at all my late 40s were way worse than I feel in my 50s hormonally and I don't think people talk about I I cannot tell you how many friends of mine I don't think I could name a single friend of mine who is my age who didn't, where the wheels didn't come off the bus in their late 40s. Well, I'm in my late 40s now. This is the eye of the storm, Kevin. Yeah, I'm talking about it a lot with Piers, and it's definitely, you know... You don't mean Piers Morgan, you mean people our age. (laughs) No, I mean Piers Piers. um, Corbyn. (laughs) Yeah, well, he's always very, very sensible. He's very like, open to all, all uh, And he always has a very informed, chat. rational viewpoint as well on everything. So he's helpful. Did he make you a banner to take to Yeah, Piers Corbin and Davina have really got me through this. <laughs> That's it. We're all going to be saying that. We'll be thanking them to our rocking chairs at the end of our days. But I do wish people would would know, honestly, would know that. And I, and I wish when I'd left my job that I'd said... I didn't mention the menopause at any point. I was like, I'm struggling. Well, people didn't. I do think people yeah. are talking about it more now than they 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 previously were. Davina can't stop talking about it. You know, no one I has know. a for dinner who else? Um, who's that one that was married to one of the Gallagher's? Meg. Meg's apparently a bit yeah. of a, uh, a menopause guru as well. Sadie Frost she? can't get off it now either. Oh, right. And then everyone follows this Dr. Newsom on Instagram. She's, yes. She's the menopause doctor. Yeah, so I'm up to speed with it all. So my GP didn't stand a chance once I'd got, like, once I'd made my mind up, I was getting it. You were, like, politicised about menopause. I was politicised, yes. And I remember being politicised about childbirth when I did all that as well. Me too. I was a militant uh, Yeah, I was a militant because I wanted a home birth and they tried to talk me out of it, as did all my in-laws. And it was as if I had to go through some sort of... um, thing with it all a bit kind of like a sort of empowerment thing where I'm like no I know what I want to do I've made my mind up stop trying to talk me out of it and similarly with the menopause I think women have to just always go through a lot of this shit when it comes to their bodies and the fertility chapters and all that stuff you become a sort of expert on whatever the thing is life throws at you don't you I remember when Jake was diagnosed with autism I suddenly became like project manager of autism if you'd asked me at the time anything to do with provisions in schools any of the kind of science of it I just became an expert when I was having a I was and similarly you do have to be politicized you do have to sort of know your shit to get what you know you need but then you feel, I think that a lot of people mistake women being assertive for being aggressive, don't they? I, there was a study in um, well, Silicon is... Valley called The Elephant in the Valley, which looked at how women and men were treated. And um, I think it was 80% of women had been told they were aggressive and a yes. similar percent of men had been told they were too soft. And well, probably, these things fascinate yeah, me. Yeah. I mean, my sh- I'm, without, I mean, you've beautifully segged into me plugging my tour, but my tour's called Bosch and it is about that, that I have this boshy nature and sometimes it's funny and it's you know I can use it comedically to affect but I'm also a little bit ashamed of it and I've always been told that I was strident and I've always been construed as a bit aggressive and that isn't necessarily obviously what I intend and I think it is a gender thing I don't think men get that like if women are described as ambitious that's a little bit a bit of a put you know what I mean it's like it's meant a tiny bit derogatory. Yeah, a bit like when they say you're a handsome woman, you're like, I don't think that sounds quite right. No, quite. <laughs> or if you've got a potty mouth, you think, I don't think blokes get called potty mouths. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely the, and we all know the old cliche on the circuit that you'll do like 20 seconds about, you know, genitals on stages of stand-up and you'll be talking, why do you have to talk about your, you know, why do you have to talk about that? And then blokes will be up there talking about tossing off for 20 minutes and no one's like, why do you talk about that? It's so we should patient. do a whole tossing off gig where we just all talk about tossing off. It'd be very easy a after themed lockdown. evening. There wasn't a lot to do, was there? So, you know, I didn't even have kids to bring up. Full-time job, like a teenage boy. Uh, sorry, mum and dad, if you're listening. So is there, in terms of, I mean, because I heard you do the, um, I love Josh and Rob's, parenting hell podcast and you were one of the first on it weren't you and I had a row with my daughter on it it was so good they couldn't believe that I sort of said keep it in I didn't even say it didn't even occur to me to say take it out and then Josh was like I can't believe we didn't get a message from you afterwards saying don't use that (laughs) and did she have because my kids are really funny about I think they might be secretly a little bit proud of what I do certainly I think they like it if you do a bit of telly or you do some, or you meet someone they like. I think they think that's cool, but mostly they think I'm an asshole. Yeah, and same. and I think 
it, they just won't get involved. In, like Jake and I have been offered to do some quite interesting speaking things because he's he's now a zookeeper and his story is quite interesting. Yeah. And he's also really funny and he's a much better broadcaster than I am. And we occasionally get asked to do something together and he'd be great. He'd be that I could hitch my wagon to his star happily. He just isn't interested. He's like, I don't want to do it and I definitely don't want to do it with you. Yeah, um, no. Kids just don't. My, my daughter says to me regularly, you're, you're not funny. You're not funny. And I'm like, but no, how I am live- you funny? Because I don't I know if I am funny. funny. <laughs> Well, I don't know, but when I'm trying to be fun, like when I'm being funny, she'll just blink at me and be like, you're not funny. But wouldn't it be weird, I guess, if at that age they weren't pushing back against us? If they were just like, I think you're amazing, I'd like to be like no, you. That We'd would be like, be there's really something weird. actually wrong it's with like you. It's like when like 14-year-olds still believe in Father Christmas, you're like, that's just weird. You really Yeah, or well, kids who say their mum is their best friend, I'm always like, yeah, you no, need, no, you know, you need no. to get a proper friend. Yeah, no, absolutely. You're right. And I do, I must admit, privately, I do find it quite funny that she doesn't find me funny. I kind of I'm amused by it. Yeah. And we've all had people in audiences who feel like that. And it just happens yes. she's your only audience and she's at home. Yeah. And we just have these little battles about it. But she, she, I don't know if she is very impressed particularly. She doesn't watch the things I do on telly. Or if she does, she doesn't tell me. I think that's also quite good though. Because can you imagine if they were, it's a bit like you not going and standing over her when she's doing her homework. It's kind of like everyone needs their own life, don't they? You don't yeah, want totally. her to be totally not- involved. Is she, because you grew up, totally into acting right like you were always into it from yeah when you can so. remember I think so I did all that kind of stuff like drama club and all that yeah when I was a teenager or a kid. and did you find that was and again I've heard you sort of talk on a few things in terms of that some comedians seem to get into comedy because they're quite fucked up and they didn't have roots and branches with their mum and dad and it was all a bit of a mess you don't sound like that's your story you sound like you had a you know pretty pretty solid upbringing yeah. and, and you didn't get into it out of desperation or being lost in the breeze is, is that no, right I think so I don't re- yes I know what you mean there is that kind of tears of a clown reputation yeah there is uh, and when you I, sit backstage sometimes you're like it's real there's some real <laughs> teary clowns here but there is also some fairly sort of you know together clowns too that's true um and you have to be a bit together don't you? you've got to turn up and do the job I mean it is yeah, definitely job. definitely yeah. I I I um I feel like I did sort of have a fairly healthy and sound, you know, my parents gave me enough attention for me. I don't know why I felt the need to perform. I, it's, sorry, I'm not very articulate. You'll have to cut me. You'll have to cut around. I'm not being very articulate about it because maybe I have spoken about it before, but I just, yeah, I, I don't recall a specific moment with regard to that sort of like, I need to go out and make strangers laugh. I don't know what that's about. Did you need your tribe though? Because I think sometimes like partly doing drama, I used to find that the place I most fitted in at school was with people in drama club and when you did plays and it wasn't yeah, all no, I in your year and stuff. Yeah, I definitely liked the tribe of like finding performers. And um, and then when I did do acting and was an actor and then I found the tribe of comedians, mm-hmm. I was like, oh no, these are even more my people. You were getting like, more and more niche. I was getting Tribally more niche. niche. I was like, no, actors aren't quite right. It's comedians yeah. that I like. Yeah. And I do, I do like comedians. I do find them pleasing people. I, do I mean as complex, well. but, but pleasing. It's just so weird, isn't it? You just have weird com- I think if you're open to what talk about what the world getting bigger and bigger when at our age in our situation for some people it gets smaller and smaller I love the fact that you'll be somewhere and you just have a weird a weird things happens either a conversation you have or something weird happens at the venue or you end up in a place you never thought you'd be yeah and the randomness of it and people who are really open to that tend to be quite interesting people I think yeah no definitely and I think um no matter where you are like I did a few gigs in the states over the last few years and I kind of quite liked that I could click into that vibe any there, anywhere, like a bit kind of, I suppose, like if you're in the AA and you need a buddy and you're abroad and you're like, I need support. Yeah. I need to do a gig. I need to find, <laughs> I need a community. I need a community and that you can just. I need to be the normal one. Yes. And I, I can attach myself to a little comedian's gaggle somewhere else. <laughs> How did you find it? Because I, I start, when I started out, I was working for an American company. Um, I was working for Viacom. So I used to spend loads of time in New York. So my first 18 months of gigging was almost 50% over there. And 50%. You're all on the open mic circuit. So, wow. and I loved the fact that over there, I would always go posher than I am. So I'd go very Queen's English. And I think that being, yeah, just being a posh 
woman they would lose their shit I, and saying I was a single mum I'd usually get about two minute applause break and then just have to tell three <laughs> jokes go home I, I haven't done loads out there but one of them I know that I didn't have a brilliant response there was one in New York a few years ago and a friend was in the audience and afterwards I said to him that's really weird because they just really didn't sort of get on board and he went Kerry they couldn't understand a word you were saying you were going like the clappers uh, like I was just going so quickly you have to go so slowly because yeah. it because it, I know it sounds yeah it sounds silly doesn't it but yeah. definitely yeah but he just said you just you they just couldn't understand you yeah. and then I did one uh, like two nights later and did go slower and it was fine like playing an audio book on half speed yeah it was really sort of um I but that again that boshy thing in me I do always go like the clapper I mean like for years as a comic starting out it was always like slow down slow down always my notes in acting always was yeah fine but just do it slower even like when I got married I remember m- walking down the aisle and me and my dad sort of on double plate, like almost sort of galloping to get to my now husband. Like an old Charlie Chaplin film. Yeah, it's all a bit sped up. And like, I just remember the woman who married us, like the priest woman, she just sort of gestured like, slow down, just slow down. And I thought, God, even in these moments, it's always, always the general feedback for me is just slow down. Is it, um, I'm the same, I have to really remember, and that's the horrible thing about doing a podcast is there's no way, you know, you've got to listen back to it for the edit notes. And every time I'm like, what, well, you know, what a dick. Oh, uh, listening and why did I speak to like podcasts that? is oh. a nightmare. I mean, I just, even doing one now, I can't be fully present because I'm on the outside of myself going, you know that you, you will regret saying that. You're talking too quickly. You're not being clear. I, they just... Bizarrely. The good thing is you're not self-critical though, Kerry. That's the nice thing about you. Very generous. <laughs> <laughs> but we do, it's a bit, it's a benevolent edit. I remember someone saying that when I first did QI, they said, don't worry, it's a benevolent edit. Oh, and I thought that's phrase. a lovely phrase. So yeah. basically the aim to make everybody look good. Um, and I, I love the fact you're worrying about that when you had a full row on Josh and Rob's uh, <laughs> thing. Well, it it's partly because of that. I because It wasn't ages- a full row, by the way, actually. I thought it was quite sweet. I thought it was quite a loving, because I've, I've got a teenage daughter or had one. I thought it was quite a loving mum daughter I kind of got it I was like I sort of know where that's coming from (laughs) well I'm more comfortable with that kind of podcast than others in a lot of ways because it's just actually I'm it's more relaxed isn't it I was it was you know it was the real it was a real moment yeah exactly and is it that and that Bosch thing that you talked about so you're and and we'll give it a good old plug in the show notes so that's next year's show right so you're well I mean well it was I mean to be honest it feels like I feel like share I don't think I'm ever not going to be on till now yeah it's I I was doing it before the pandemic then it stopped because of the pandemic then I resumed it this autumn so I've done loads of dates then it goes stop now for a bit then it comes back again next January is it changing then as you go is it it's kind of a little bit the core of it hasn't like the sort of spine and the through line and everything and what but is actually, it so the core of it is is what what it's is just bosh? this sort of boshy nature and sort of unpacking it a little bit but a lot of it is me doing what I do in stand-up which is I don't know observational stuff about family life or um consumerism I kind of are you finding now after a few years of doing comedy you think oh I do revisit I revisit my themes I've got my sort of themes Definitely, and actually yeah. because I because of lockdown some of those themes just got really lent into quite hard, like, you know, family life. So actually, I didn't have to rewrite it that much because all of it still held up. And do you find that the, um, I can imagine when you're a sort of frustrated actor, when you first start out acting, because I know you took up stand up fairly soon after kind of leaving drama school and stuff. And did you, it must have been quite a good way to take back a bit of control, wasn't it? When you're sort of at the whim of yeah. casting, you know, d- agents, yeah. and then suddenly you're like, well, I'll bloody get on stage if I want, thanks. Oh, uh, yeah, something. it definitely fit, fit my nature better because after I left college, because I loved drama school and I was really excited to be there. And I knew I wasn't naive enough to think that I was going to walk out of drama school and get like have an amazing acting career. But it just is a real shock when you do suddenly just endure this sort of, um unemployment thing and you're kind of led to believe that it's like this is part of the deal you know know all the stats and blah 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 but it's just really it's really boring I mean Mm -hmm. apart from the fact that it's financially miserable it's really really boring because you're just you've got all this desire to work and you're not working so as soon as I started doing stand-up I just was able to throw myself at it Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and and immediately got a sense of well-being or worth or you know agency or whatever I was like oh this is a this is a thing I can do this and I can get good at it and and put my energy into it 
And it's your own, um, there's, there, it is your own voice, isn't it? I think there's something really, there's something lovely about d- saying someone else's lines and being, not having to take full yeah, responsibility. Yeah, I love doing that. Yeah. But there's something about it being your own voice. And does it, I can imagine that, I can imagine that it helps, that your acting would help your stand-up maybe more than the other way around. Is that right? Or is that the wrong assumption? Do you mean like as in the craft? or Yeah, as in the craft. Sort of having gone to drama school would help you in your stand-up and knowing oh, definitely, those acting yeah. sort of No, tricks. definitely. I was able to, yeah, there was a bit of stagecraft that I could, I could implement with stand-up. But I did a stand-up course as well, and a lot of people go, oh, but how do you learn to be funny? And it isn't sort of about that, is it really? I mean, like, the core, the, the thing about stand-up, I suppose, is that you usually build it on a bit of a, a sort of sensation, like a, an assumption that you're funny anyway, and that you've been funny and you've made people laugh yeah. for years, and you've made people laugh in at work or in all these other contexts and blah, 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 and you're kind of just sort of, trying to whatever that little spark of what humor is you're trying to put a bit of stagecraft around it and and make it into a routine and realize it's a lot easier to make your mates down the pub laugh than it is one of the shocks I had because I think god people always really love like my mates think I'm really funny but then I realized there's context right you come in and tell a story to your mates and they're like oh that's typical Callie that she did that but people in a crowd don't know that so I know but then you kind of apply you learn like yeah I suppose you learn a few tricks as to how to take that contrivance of right how do I get my persona there and put it there yes how can I shift that persona somewhere else like when we were at college I did do things like storytelling like we had a whole sort of term where we learned storytelling techniques where like I suppose in a theatrical context it would be a one-woman show yeah and this was a drama school this was a drama school so you know where you do kind of do that turning on a pin where I'm now I'm this character and then I said this character and then this character so it's using that sort of craft sort of thing and putting it in a stand-up context yeah. and not making it look too um too contrived yeah there's a lot of effort that goes into making it look effortless isn't there I think yes. there is with with stand-up and that's the as soon as they I think it, I heard Ramesh talking about that and saying that when he'd been you know nominated and had a lot of success really early and then he just could not get his next show right and I think it might have been Sean Walsh said to him you know you're trying so fucking hard mate you know every time we're watching you you're so you want it too much and everyone can right. smell it and it's just yeah. not you just need to let go of it have some fun again. Well, that's the easiest thing to say and not necessarily the hardest thing. Because to also do. as well, you know, when expectations go, I, if you have had some success, then you feel like you've got to sustain that level of that quality of work and not allow yourself to fall on your ass or be playful or, you know, Sometimes what I find fascinating about stand-up is there are bits, there are routines, especially when you're working up an hour, and there are bits that you know are like bangers that you could do in a club and they work really well. And then there's these baggy bits that yes. are a bit shit. Yeah. And you know they're a bit shit, but you kind of think, well, with the wind at my back, I could probably style it out. Yeah. That's, you and... described 47 minutes of my last show. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, then what happens is this other weird little thing happens where, that like, good bits emerge in the shit bits (laughs) and you have to allow yourself to be shit to find the diamonds completely and there's all these like I don't know metaphors for life probably somewhere in there but you've got to hang out in that discomfort of shitness to find the gold yeah the walking walking towards discomfort which is yes. such a, and you get so much out of that I, I remember someone and you'll know you'll know much more about this because you're you're properly trained as an actor and I'm not but the kind of idea that with improv as well you go further into the discomfort and that if yes. something sort oh, of follows the funny yeah <laughs> I hate theatre sports and improv and all that stuff because yes you're right you do have to yeah. practice all those um you know techniques and and theories and all stuff. that wank all that wank yeah. all that pretending it's a brick is it a phone yeah is it a handbag I can't do I can't do that yeah but and yet I will apply those beliefs to stand-up and evolving routines in a stand-up context I'm definitely more of a performer than a writer for yes, different reasons too. so I come from sort of a different type of performing and hosting yeah. but that's what feels natural and I got a sense from you you can you can land whatever you want because you've got a capacity to perform it um, but does that mean where does where does the writing fit in with that then because I, I write a lot on writing. stage yeah no I struggle with writing I yeah. write on stage as well I kind yeah. of have a few ideas and I scribble down notes and then I work them up on stage I have found jokes in in the valleys of shitness that I never believed anything of any value dwelled. And then suddenly you're like, oh, 
there's yeah. a bit there and the throwaway line becomes the routine and I like that I like the the realization of that and the kind of um what other jobs where it, uh, is that true of that you have to really wade in to the unknown and see what you find there and endure a horrible feeling a horrible yeah. horrible <laughs> feeling of standing on stage talking shit I mean there's no paradox <laughs> like the audacity to stand <laughs> on stage in front of paying humans and go shush listen to this shit <laughs> it's so audacious <laughs> it is that thing though isn't it of like and also you failing there's no there's no kind of hiding away going oh, I think I fucked up that meeting at work I think Angela from HR thought I was a bit of a dick it's like everybody in the room watched yeah. that everybody yeah. you can see that's what they're thinking yeah and you almost want to have a disclaimer going, sometimes I'm quite good, but, it, but I'm not tonight. Uh, uh, tonight's not one of those nights. So somebody but that's came what, up. That's <laughs> what you mean about Ramesh saying, because if he's now Ramesh off the telly, yeah, it's even further to fall when you're shit. It's even worse. Well, because it, you're not like this anonymity where you're like, oh, I'm just a goofball having a go. It's like, I'm the person off the telly. Yeah. And now I have to, even more to sort of prove that I'm not a twat. I can still pretend it's my third gig if need be. I'll be like, I'm just starting out. I just thought I'd have a go. Well, <laughs> I will pretend uh, new material is new material for a lot longer than it genuinely is. Yeah, yeah. They're with notes, even they don't need them, like scattering around bits of paper so yeah, that it looks authentic. Yeah. Like, oh, these are just ideas I had on the way here when, in fact, it was stuff I've been working on. I think a lot of people do that, don't they? Yeah. And I remember it. lying at the beginning, like, so lying to get gigs. So I'd pretend I'd been going longer than I had to get gigs. And then once I'd crossed over, I'd pretend I was newer than I was yes. to justify the fact that I was still a Just bit natural shit. genius that's bursting out of you on gig seven. Just when so it's many gig lies. 207. Just a web of lies. <laughs> <laughs> so that's one of the bits of take out from this episode. Just lie, kids, lie. Well, you sort of have to do that thing of what is truth? What is, I'm, am I performing when I'm trying to get the gig? I mean, you could argue it's a character. I'm playing a character trying to get stage time. Yeah, I'm playing a character when I'm shoplifting Kerry. That's a character, so there's nothing wrong with my moral compass. It's all just part of the uh, great facade of life. Yes. Namaste, motherfuckers. In terms of um of that idea now, having the kind of profile, because I guess you get people who want to come and see you because they know you as a stand-up, but also because they've seen you in Derek or Afterlife or whatever yeah. it is. Is, is there that pressure then that they're like, they actually have come to see you rather than you being some random on a mixed bill who they might or might not yeah. like? Yeah. And I like that. I like, I wanted that. I remember seeing that, witnessing that with other people and thinking, Oh, I want that because the audience likes them and thinks like they're investing in their voice and what they have to say. Yeah. So now when I do a tour show, I feel like, Oh, these are my friends. These are people that want to see me and they want to like hang out with me and know what I want to say for an hour. And then when I go back to a, um, a gig, like yeah. a, a, bill, a mixed bill, I, I forget. <laughs> and the audience aren't there for me. And I'm like, Oh, I have to prove my, I, it's a, you know, you have to sort of wear different hats, don't you? Where, so is it, I can imagine if people are there for you that you you get a bit of grace. They've come for you. Get you, a bit of you grace, get, yeah. but you'll probably get what five minutes of grace, and then you've just got to be good. Well, I don't, yeah, I suppose you just got to come out and deliver. But there's definitely a warmth that I really like. Like when I come out, there's a sort of uh, a welcoming warmth that I'm like, oh, they especially now since the pandemic because they've held those tickets. Yeah. Um, you know, they've held on to those tickets for the best part of like 18 months waiting for this bloody show. Yeah. So, yeah, you do feel a bit of pressure of like, oh, it really, you know, it really better not be shit. But there's also a warmth and a kind of investment on their part that I, I do think, yeah, you're right, gives you a, bit, a lot of grace. Um, but then, yeah, I did a gig the other day, which was just a mixed bill, just a normal show. And it wasn't as warm. <laughs> And I was like, oh, you don't, you don't want me in particular. You just want a mixed bill of comics. So I had to kind of, you know, re, re, 
collaborate. Pull the knob gags out. Pull the knob gags out, yeah. I saw somebody um, the other night, someone who I absolutely love and who's got one of the most brilliant solo shows I've ever seen. And she was on, on a, you know, quite a big club and I was emceeing and she was closing. And it was just really weird watching, knowing what a standing she's got with so many people and how brilliant she is. And that club yeah. just wasn't for them. And yeah. I was like, God, I can't believe that could happen to her. Yeah, no, it to me, happen. she's like a total hero. No, I know, it's imagine. interesting, isn't it? That's why yeah. it's so... I remember years ago a comic saying to me, it's just so lovely when you get to tour and you have got your audience and they they do kind of, you've got a bit of shorthand with them. It's just really, really lovely. It's like kind of what I wanted. Yeah. And so it's really great to ha- have it. Are you quite a sort of spiritual, self-helpy kind of person? Where are you yeah. on that? Yeah, I have. And I have always been like it. It hasn't been just later in life. So even as, well, as a as a young woman? Yeah, because my mum used to be into it all. So she's a bit of an old hippie. So I used to read self-help books a lot when I was like young, like in my late teens, early 20s. And I no, I read. I remember reading Gloria Steinem's Revolution from Within when I was probably about seventeen or eighteen and stuff like that. So you were an I was early all, adopter. I was an all early adopter, yeah. but probably wouldn't have talked about it. Still slightly reluctant to talk about yeah, it. Yeah, no one talks because, about women masturbating or reading self help, did they? No, quite. Then? I mean, it's definitely more openly talked about now, like yes. maybe HRT a little bit or lifestyley things. Or, but I, yeah, I definitely wouldn't have talked about it um, then. And I have always flirted with that spiritual side of life and did yoga from when I was young and went traveling around India and sort of probably was a bit of a wanker about it all. And so I've always been into what my friend calls plinky plonky things. Yeah. Um, for a long time. And do the plinky plonky things. So what are, first, well, first of all, do you ever try and get your, so you've sort of got that from your mum being a bit of a hippie. Where's your yeah. daughter on it or you, and your son? You Not know. into to it okay <laughs> not at all I mean like occasionally she's 14 so I suppose I probably wasn't much into it at 14 when did I suppose when do you come around to that sort of desire to think about uh, I mean I, I'm fascinated by this stuff if you're not religious or raised religious mm-hmm. and you've had a sort of secular upbringing which I had to an extent I mean my dad's a real sort of card-carrying atheist and mm-hmm. as I say my mum's more of a kind of hippie than a um, mm-hmm. spiritual, like, you know, she wouldn't align herself with any specific religion or belief system, but it's definitely, she will definitely use words like the universe that will be plumped into mm-hmm. conversation. Um, and I don't know when you kind of come around to sort of thinking about that stuff really as a, per- I mean, like my daughter's not remotely interested in it. No, mine's not either. She really takes the piss out of me. She really yeah. does all my kind of hippie shit and therapy I've had years and years of therapy in and out of it and my yeah I think my daughter just is like every generation has their own like my mum was sort of really into it and I probably just picked up a bit on it because she was really into it and I am a bit you were universe light and she was full in universe she was full in therapy training to be a therapist yeah all of it like fully that all that stuff really chimes with a lot of wind chimes kicking about chimes there were jostics there were crystals there were buddhas like all that shit was going on yeah and And there's not so many buddhas and jostics i can see in your backdrop there no there's a couple of buddhas kicking about there's always buddhas kicking about there's a few like ganeshes like i do like all that stuff like i will but now there's this new sort of um angle on it isn't there about appropriation and stuff Mm. like that so oh you should see what i got for calling this namaste motherfuckers i got some proper namaste hating and do you know what namaste means oh should i tell you my favorite namaste story so my friend um she's lovely she makes me laugh so she emailed this yoga center inquiring (laughs) about some classes and then they answered her and signed off namaste yeah so then she answered them back Dear Namaste, thank you for your, <laughs> your prompt reply. Reply. <laughs> Did they correct her? No, but when she told me she'd done it, I really love that. Dear, Dear Namaste. Namaste, thank you for your prompt response. <laughs> it's like a sort of automated call centre, isn't it? Where they'll just get whatever the last thing is yeah. you said. Yes. And uh, that's your name. She just now. assumed their name was Namaste. <laughs> yeah, I definitely got some. I think people do get, also, it's almost like, 
virtue signaling it's like my bit of like the yogi community is this yeah. and you don't have any right to be in it because yeah. you don't get this thing and it can be quite a bit of sort of one-upmanship there's nothing worse than a sort of earnest self-help uh, who doesn't really want you to be in their club but wants to show no. you why you well the problem talking be. about all this stuff like spirituality or um any of these things that we're talking about is that they they massively suffer in translation yeah they do <laughs> so you know you, the minute you sort of try and articulate what you get out of it or the value of it 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 just falls apart because it's not something it's just something that I construe as sort of private really yeah you can and sound like a real smug dick very you quickly. just sound like a dick or you sound yeah. like you're telling people what to do yes like sometimes if other people seem like they're having a tricky time with something and you're like well I think you should just breathe yeah you just sound like wanker yes. who's not grasped the extent of their problems and I think people you know? often want to take you down for I know when I did um I did a master's in neuro-linguistic programming years ago and people get really opinionated about NLP yes. yeah and I I didn't really feel I didn't feel ambivalent because I spent years doing it but it's not a thing that I feel evangelical about I don't use it like a weird trick I'm not trying to be Paul McKenna no but don't find people I, more since cognitive therapy aren't people a bit more on board with NLP I think people still they they kind of want they want you to be evangelical about it so they can take you down and say it's actually not as good as you think and and, and I had a really bad experience with it and, and I think people are quite taken aback when I say it's it's a thing I find interesting I probably yeah. do use it in some ways that I don't exactly. even think about but I'm not evangelical about it and if you really no. hate it that's fine hate it don't ever I do mean, anything with it I mean it's fascinating I mean like yeah. I I I'm I'm a bit like my mum I suppose in that cherry picking way like I will dabble in a bit of buddhism and I'll dabble in a bit of yoga and I'm quite open to ideas and I'll take what's useful to me at a given time and sometimes i maintain it and sometimes I fail and drop the ball with it and it is I you know I've got better over the years as I've got older of not trying to not over analyzing it I'm just I take what's useful and and dump what's not I suppose well that's kind of all NLP is I mean that's the funny thing when people get that's all it is it was everything that had preceded it put into a sort of melting pot that was a bit more accessible so it took yeah. all the principles of other psychological approaches and put them in a sort of kit form that then did get used as a bit of a twatty technique in businesses and stuff it got a yeah. bit sort of David Brent I think the way it was used but if you look at the principles and all we're ever doing is evolving any individual we take everything we found out and read and done and tried and it's mm. human instinct to go well that bit works I like it that's exactly. like evolution isn't it I'll take the yeah. things I like that help me and I'll get rid of the stuff I don't like and it's all quite perfect and sim- I mean similarly what I was saying to you earlier about like home birthing and hypnobirthing and stuff like that and I know that some people were like I remember it really stressed my mother-in-law out and I'm talking to her about meditation and like mindfulness and stuff like that and she she sent me an article that she'd cut out about how it can trigger depression because you know it sort of it you'll be accessing things in your mind that maybe you should leave alone and it's really like complicated for people you shouldn't really sort of yeah. tell people what to do you know they'll come to it or not in their own time or if they do or don't you know was, I was surprised that even something as like useful as, and basic and simple as mindfulness to someone else could be a threat or threatening it's, yeah, it's or, almost or, a threat isn't it and I think it's I think people maybe think that it's like a cult or something like you do something yes. and you're going to be like yeah I went on this mindfulness course and I've been told to recruit you now yes. so when we start talking about it actually yeah, yeah you're going to be wearing a, a frock and and um, I don't want to yeah. wear a badge for it, any particular technique or strategy or movement all of it is like look you do what you're doing and these things sometimes are useful for me yeah I do find that I've, I'm a, I run one of the things that helps me is running it really helps me and it's not actually so much for being fit it's m- mental health I mean mental I health, properly yeah. it properly helps me and I don't go around saying to people I'm a runner you should run but when I say I run I, I reckon two-thirds of the time somebody will tell me why they hate running and why running's bad for your knees and yeah. your hips and I think I really that's fine that you hate yeah, running you I hate thing. swimming yeah. that's great you know don't worry same about with it. yoga if you yeah. tell people you do yoga they I mean I do yoga in the most casual kind of like I do that yoga with Adrian like online yeah. thing and really I just like hanging out with her sometimes yeah. I'm just sitting cross-legged breathing while she's like working her ass off yeah but I'm just That's ideal that approach on a mat, to yoga hanging out with this woman who I pretend is my friend in Texas yeah but you know it's it's just it, I'm not like strident yeah. <laughs> about any of it particularly yeah you're not I'm stridently just, smug <laughs> no, I'm not stridently doing uh <laughs> 
stridently meditating is a paradox. <laughs> I do. I sometimes think I go to Pilates to, um, I, I think it's for the company of women. I miss their being. I used to love when I was part of the kind of school run community when I was always yeah. working, but you have that, you know, everyone in your neighborhood, if your kids go to local state schools, right. And you're yeah. sort of part of something. And in the days yes. my kids were young, it was primarily women who did the school run, not exclusively. And, and I didn't do it all the time. My kid's dad did a lot of it, but I, I realize now when I go to Pilates, it's that same feeling. There's like women, they're not always the same women but the sort of chat that goes on and just being in the company yeah. of those women for an hour I think that's as good for me as anything I'm doing with my body well if you wear a baggy t-shirt to Pilates you don't even really have to do it like I don't think anyone's doing know. anything at Pilates I don't think anyone knows what their pelvic floor is <laughs> or why we're there or why we're paying so much to be there we could just be in Starbucks to be fair yeah. it's like you're like I'm doing it I'm doing it it's just internal and, very and they say can you feel it you're like oh can I feel it oh yeah my sacrum <laughs> I don't know what it is but I think my sacrum's had a full flex my lower chakras are really <laughs> tightened up oh they're on fire after that thank you well I'll take them I don't even know if I can get home they're so excited if you had to sort of encapsulate what your formula is at the moment for sort of well-being and being okay what are there sort of things you do a few things that you do rely on um apart from I, not doing podcasts when like I'm <laughs> when I'm beating myself up for some <laughs> failing or another I do try and remind myself to be kind to myself yeah and that when people have said and friends that are on similar paths or have similar life views you know if you're ranting to a mate about something you fucked up um I when friends say just be kind to yourself and I'm I do you know I think that's a nice thing to do self-compassion yeah self radical self-compassion yeah wow. just be putting the bush into self-compassion yes yeah there's a brilliant podcaster a woman called Tara Brack a, a Buddhist yes I love Tara Brack yeah so that's like a real I listen to her every week and I get a lot from that and that kind, of, yeah, I do like that kind of radical compassion that she sort of, you know, encourages people to practice. And yeah, that would be just that kind of calm down, be kind to yourself. You know, life can be hard enough. And if you're giving yourself a shit time, you know, if you're the person that is beating yourself up, then all is lost. You know, you have to sort of look after yourself, don't you? I remember um, them describe, I can't remember what it was because I've tried so many different like courses and mindfulness and if there's any crap out there you can pay something for and go off and see if you can better yourself I've done it and uh, <laughs> to varying degrees of success I would have to say but I remember the first time anyone talked about self-care someone said to me so what do you do for self-care and I couldn't even unpick what it I'd been a single mum for 15 years by then I was like self-care yeah. it hadn't even occurred to me that that was an yeah. option I was I, just I like, mean it's such yeah. an oversight isn't it that oh I, totally, I these... couldn't even think what it would look like I was like how would that what would I no. could not think what it could be I'm sure if someone had said that to me in my heightened moments of like self-flagellation I'd have just cried I'd have just been like what do you mean self-care yeah I think that is what yeah. I did. And they were like, that'll be £120. I said, it's nice doing business with you. They gave me a few lentils and off I trotted. It seems so easy, doesn't it? As a sort of like philosophy, but just be kind to yourself. And it's the whole metaphor that I'm sure has been used a hundred times. If you're on a, you know, if you're in turbulence in an aeroplane, you don't take the oxygen mask off and put it on someone else. You have to put it on yourself first before you're of any use to anyone else. So it's like you do have to look after yourself and then you can be better for other people. Yeah, that's what I tell myself when I'm incredibly selfish in regards to my children. But no, but you see, you've done that thing. I know. You've, you've said it's selfish and it isn't. You <laughs> yeah. know, like when you're young and hedonistic, your identity is all bound up with being like, woo, party girl or whatever. Then when you're not ceasing to really want to do that anymore, you have to redefine yourself. Then you become a parent and everything. I mean, fuck, becoming a parent is the biggest identity shift. Then as they get older and they don't need you in that way, you've got another identity shift. Yeah. You know, it's, it's like it's constantly evolving. And if you're not, if you don't have some sort of philosophy to reflect on this stuff, it, it just overwhelms you. Well, your strategies reach their sell-by dates, I think. By a certain yeah. point, I was interviewing Louisa Young, who wrote a brilliant book you left earlier. I don't know if you've read it, but if you love her, if you love her, a sort of deep think, it's, it's about her love affair with Robert Lockhart, who was a sort of um, alcoholic genius composer. And it's just the most beautifully, and it's really funny, but it's the oh, best depiction really? of alcoholism I've ever read. And I've got a propensity for dating alcoholics, so I was really interested in it. And I, uh -huh. I interviewed her yesterday, and she's slightly older than me. And we were talking about that, that your strategies that got you through 20, 30 years yeah. do reach their sell boy day. And if you have, if that yeah. happens to be alcohol, that's when it's going to bite you in the ass and mentally and physically you'll start yeah. to collapse. But we all have it with something else. It's food or it's overwork or it's, we've all got a thing that we've used to totally. cope. Yeah. And, and we can't judge 
alcohol or drugs any more than food or, or consumerism, consumerism that's I mean yeah. I spent like two hours yesterday looking at jumpsuits online oh like, that but that's actually a very good use of I mean that could be one of your tips happening? I was like what are you <laughs> well what Tara Brat would say what are you numbing what are you numbing here I don't know, but these jumpsuits are compelling. (laughs) Exactly. Anything that makes my mum tum looks good, Tara. It's good for you. It's good for me. It's It's radical jumpsuits. (laughs) Exactly. Get on board. Namaste, motherfuckers. What would you pick, Kerry, as your namaste, motherfucking, life-changing moment? I can't. I don't have one. I I, I want a montage. Give me a montage. montage? Like a pop video. Yeah, like you did on your Memory Lane podcast. People bring all their little photos in. Yeah, like there's no, like, just little moments throughout yeah, my life I don't have, moments. I didn't have one I, I don't know I think things like I think I, I panicked a lot when I was a teenager I was quite anxious I used to have like anxiety what we now call what do we call them now anxiety um episodes or whatever yeah yeah but I, that panic attacks and things like that and I can remember my mum trying to get me to grasp the notion that my imagination is kind of arguably a little bit in my control you know when you just think yeah I I am at the whim of what pops into my head and then someone suggests the notion that you can control it yeah <laughs> and that there is some semblance of decision making and it might feel that that's ambitious but even just being open to the concept that you do make some decisions with regard to your own mind yes even just someone introducing the notion that your mind is separate from you well, and the fact that your thoughts aren't facts. I found that really and helpful. Your, yes, said thoughts, and not facts. your thoughts, not facts. Or yeah. that it's, you know, not necessarily true. Yes. And uh, and I think that was probably quite a big moment. I, I remember sort of really mulling on that and really... I, yeah, I don't know if I've done much with it since, but it was a turning point moment. And then things like travelling, I do remember that being a big deal. Like I went off on my own to India, which... Um, How old were you? Not young enough to make out like that was super brave, but like 20, 24, 25. I think that is super brave. I would still find it hard to go to India on my own. Well, I wasn't 52. meant to go on my own. I was meant to go with some mates, but they all dropped out. And me being me, I was like, well, fuck you. I'll go on my own. Yeah. Then. And... Um, and so it was more it, of a quest for friendships that would last rather than self-knowledge. <laughs> I, I spun it that it was a pilgrimage to, to <laughs> into my soul. But I, it was, you know, it, it was a big deal. I mean, I did have to sort of be alone with myself in some quite sort of, I don't know, it wasn't scary, but it's definitely walking towards discomfort yeah. in a way that a lot of and people... And stepping over want. a sacred cow. Yes. All by yourself. Sacred cow shit. Um Yeah, I just feel quite alone. And I think there was a value in it that, you know, now looking back, I'm like, yeah, you definitely shifted a lot by doing that. You became sort of, I think that's what I wanted from it. I wanted to shake myself out of a complacency or something like that. But again, similar to your Ricardo um, story, you think, oh, this just sounds like middle class wank. I mean, you know go traveling with <laughs> stick a bindi on and go around india with a backpack and how sort of middle class can you get but it's about your world getting bigger i do actually think you know joking aside one of the things that's gone a bit wrong a bit wrong she says understated the last 18 months is that everyone's world's got really small and anything that helps your world get bigger whether that's physically traveling somewhere or just being curious about well how, something having all your yeah. like all your belief systems upturned yeah like, like going somewhere where everything you've believed to be true is not necessarily true. And there's all these other sorts of truths that are going on, whether that be religion or um, cultural stuff. It's just such a, I mean, the phrase culture shock really did, you know, apply. Like it was a culture shock mm-hmm. on every level. And it just completely re makes you reassess who you are and how you live and choices you make and you know the privilege of having choices and blah blah, blah you know all these things that prior to that trip I don't think I fully realized and your sense of self I mean it's easy yeah. for us to think we know who we are and that's actually propped up by everything around us and when you're literally yes. plonked into another environment who, who into are you another environment and yeah. having to kind of make your way around I mean it's and also you know it's not compulsory it's not like doing um 
what what did younger people have to do gap, before that? gap years gap year it's not, it wasn't gap a gap year it wasn't like military service yeah, yeah. it wasn't oh i'm thinking know, gap years you're thinking military service i you're was thinking military service it was something specific that yeah. makes a younger person reflect on who they are and what they're going to do yes. with their life maybe and there was a value in it that i think was really useful at that time yes and um so you're comparing going to india as doing military service and that's what we're going to take from <laughs> well this. no we're not. no but you know what i mean <laughs> I just do. a kind of like a transition <laughs> from maybe youth to adulthood yes yeah, sort of coming of age and there is a lot i remember age. reading that um it's probably really unpopular now for, for good reason um but there was a book called bringing up boys that everyone was reading when jake was about eight oh, so we're talking that, 15 yeah. years ago and again yeah. i'm sure for many reasons it's very sort of binary and lots of things probably wrong with it but one of the things that made sense to me not specific to boys but was that idea that you used to have coming of age trips with a sort of role model an adult role model who wasn't your parent and you yeah. went and found yourself vis-a-vis other adults and worked out where you were. And actually that, regardless of gender, those that, that experience where it's you in an environment where you're not defined by your, your legacy as a child, there yeah, is some yeah. real power in that, I think. And you get that, yeah. don't you, if you travel, you suddenly have interface with loads of different influences. Yes, and you're completely out of your comfort zone. So yeah. you reassess everything, really. Yeah. So, yeah, that was probably a bit of a turning point. What was harder, a pilgrimage to help yourself or talking about self-help? <laughs> That's an easy answer. <laughs> it's just very hard to articulate these things and having that wanker filter going on in your head the whole time, isn't it, really? I think that because we had... to be sincere about things of this nature yeah. when you're a comedian. I know. It's the worst. That's why it's called Namaste Motherfuckers because it yeah, sums it up. I do really believe in Well, I, this I stuff, love this podcast. But... I love that, you know, it really appeals to me because it's two things that are like yeah. massive in my life. And I'm like, how are you going to surmount that? But they do coexist, right? I mean, I've sat in doing, I, I've, you know, some of my darkest moments, you have really funny observations about yourself, right? You see it happening, you're in the depths of it. Yeah. And I, when all those empty nest horrors happened, I was still able to look at it and go, you fucking idiot, sitting crying because you can't, because your daughter's school bars have come up as a favourite on Ocado. Yeah, and you yeah. think that that's, that merits a full collapse. Is you it Simon see... Amstel does a bit, doesn't he? It, maybe it's Simon Amstel about sort of cracking jokes in his therapy and his therapist saying... You don't have to be funny here. You know, we don't need you to be funny here or whatever. And he's like, what? I know. No, that's, I, <laughs> I mean, that perfectly sums up how I would be in therapy. I would, I would, you know, just naturally attempt to make the therapist laugh. Yeah. And then all they want to know is what your motivation is. Yeah. My favorite therapist um, was called Yoda. She wasn't, but I was called her Yoda. <laughs> Once to her face by mistake, but normally behind her back. But she, yeah, she would always be like that. She was like, and, and you're trying to make me laugh because, and she would yeah. just keep diving into it. And I was like, oh, Christ. Like yeah, a really so bad like, Saturday know, night crowd. Absolutely. I, I would be the one farting on a silent retreat without any doubt. Yeah, I think everyone farts on a silent retreat. It's one of the reasons people are scared to go. It's not the not talking, it's the what noise. And also your tummy, the noise your tummy makes by the time you're 52. It's a lot of noise. It's like nothing. It's I, like um, silence. I once farted in front of Colin first. That that happened. Did you? Yeah. Is that the name of your autobiography? No, but I sort of think I need to sort of unpack it as a kind of like the shame, like sort of unearthing levels of shame that I didn't know were available in the human experience. But I wonder I how he's not, talking about it. Maybe no, it was I don't a think highlight he remembers it. I just think he's a very um, I, I, I was so lowly to him. I just don't suppose it even registered. Were you on set when you first? Yeah, I was on set and I had like one day's filming, like I had one line in a film, probably paying some sort of servant and he paying some sort of gentleman. So you and just I, let one go to get yeah, some attention? Yeah, Well, no, it wasn't intentional. <laughs> no. It was nerves. And I don't think I've ever felt so mortified in my life. Finally, we got to your namaste motherfucking moment. Maybe that was my <laughs> namaste motherfucking moment. Farting in front of Mr. All Darcy. this fucking India shit you tried to Yes, all it. this fucking spiritual <laughs> plinky plonky shit. And it was discovering something about surviving farting in front of Mr. Darcy. Yeah, the first guff, which not many people have lived to discuss after. Yes. You know when you've been that low down in the gutter and survived it. <laughs> you'll be okay. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's good. That's our life advice sorted. And what's your favourite <laughs> joke, Kerry? Uh, one of my favourite jokes is what do you call a nun with a washing machine on her head? Systematic. Excellent. I'm not normally one for a pun, but it's got a nun in it and I do... Everything with a nun and a pun. Yeah. That's gold. And then I thought it might suit this podcast because it's sort of a spiritual lady, a lady of God. Yeah. 
sort of she's made some lifestyle choices that I find very admirable. That's a full commitment to to a lifestyle, isn't it? It's a real full and, um, commitment. I don't know what's worth the celibacy or the outfits. I wouldn't like the outfits, would you? I'd you love wouldn't be able outfits. to be googling take, jumpsuits. Then. I wouldn't be able, well, I'd be happy to not Google jumpsuits ever again. I would wear a wimple now quite happily. You'd wear a wimple and a heartbeat. Hair cuts, wouldn't have to worry about fringes. Look, you've got fringe and I've got fringe. Yeah, and my it's, fringe it's a I lot can of keep. Upkeep. I can keep it. I cut my own. Do you cut your own fringe? No, I did in lockdown, but it was a fucking And mess. I always cut my, as you can see right now, this is also unwashed for about seven days. I've, I'm really Imagine pushing. if you had a wimple, you wouldn't have to worry about any of this, would you? No, I don't want to have a wimple. You can't talk me into a wimple. Well, I don't I'd want to be a, a Catholic than... or a I don't want to fully marry Jesus. Is that what it is? I think a... you're meant to have a, I think you're meant to be fairly faithful to Jesus. I don't no, think you're meant to have a lot have of lovers. No, I don't want to do that, but sartorially, I'd quite happily get involved. You could just get the outfit, Kerry. That is an option. Yeah, but then that would create all kinds of problems, wouldn't it? It would take a bit of explaining at the start of your shows, especially the club gigs. <laughs> people would come up people to aren't me there for with you. certain expectations and I'd be like, look, I know I'm wearing it. I would just not outfit. mention it. I would just I don't believe in God. I would just have it there and just never reference it and just see what the fuck happens. So that's my comedy advice for you. And um, if there was one bit of life advice you could give to anybody listening, what would it be? Oh, I don't know. I can't give life advice. Be yourself. Be kind to yourself. Eat your vegetables. Don't be a cunt. <laughs> That was Kerry Godleyman. Every episode, I pick a thing inspired by my guests that I'm going to do. And this week, it's all about getting back into mindfulness, which I've let slip a bit this last couple of months, I have to say. I remember when I first got a boardroom job and I was shitting myself about not being good enough and getting found out, I had an incredible executive coach who was a guy in his 70s who by then had done one brilliant job after another. And he told me that if you don't have time to meditate for 10 minutes a day, then you need to do an hour, which sort of made sense to me when I thought about about it um, and then when I started learning about meditation techniques I was told that just 15 minutes of meditation have about the same benefits as one hour of sleep so with all that in mind I am going to do some of Tara Brack's guided meditations in fact I'm going to do one a day I've done them before but I haven't done them for ages and there are loads of options on her site there are lots of guided meditations that last about 20 minutes on average there are a few shorter and longer ones but we've put a link to all that in the show notes and namaste and if you haven't already listened to last week's episode with Louisa Young that Kerry and I talk about a bit, there's a link to that and to her book, You Left Early, in the show notes as well. So that is more than enough from me for this week and this episode. We will be back in your feed next Monday, as always, when I will be talking to radio and television presenter Colin Murray. I learned from good people when I was, when I was younger because I never wanted to work in radio or TV, so I just landed in it and then asked a lot of people for advice. Namaste Motherfuckers was written and presented by me, Callie Beaton, and produced by Mike Hansen and Karusha Dami for Pod People Productions, with music by Jake Yap. I'm Callie Beaton. Until next time, motherfuckers. Mm-hmm.